Welcome back. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner. I am interviewing Dr. Andrew Newberg uh, for Mind Matters News. Uh, Dr. Newberg is a uh, pioneer and uh, authority in the field of neurotheology. He studies the um, correspondence between brain activity and religious and spiritual experience. Uh, welcome again, Andy. J- just wanted to, to, to ask, um, do you see differences um, in the brains of people who are um, meditating uh, in a theistic and a non-theistic way? Uh, is, there some, is there something different about belief in God that you can see in the brain? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, we haven't specifically been able to make that kind of a differentiation in the sense of someone who believes in God and praying to God versus um, just uh, you know, praying or just thinking about or just meditating. But part of the problem, I think, and this is, you know, one of the things I get very excited about as, as a researcher um, are some of the methodological challenges of doing this kind of research. And so part of the problem is, is that if you are meditating on God, well, you are praying to God, there's something that you're doing, you're, you're praying, you're, you're directing your mind towards something, which may be very different from somebody who is, is directing their mind towards, you know, nothing. Um, so, you know, one of the questions would be like, well, should we, what would be the right comparison and how would we look at that? Um, you know, there was, there was one very interesting study that looked, for example, and, and this may be a partial way of answering your question, they looked at people doing conversational prayer. And they found that when people were engaged in conversational prayer, talking to God, basically, that they activated a lot of the same language areas as they did having just a normal conversation with, you know, uh, with another person. And and I think that that, you know, there is an important point there, which is that, you know, we have, we have one brain, you know, each of us has one brain. So, you know, as far as we know in the moment, it's not that we have a different part of our brain that turns on or becomes active when we engage our religious and spiritual selves. But, you know, there, there, if we, if we pray to God, if we use our language, then, our language centers of the brain will turn on. If we feel the love of God, well, our amygdala or our limbic structures will turn on. Um, if we feel connected to God, then the areas that help us with our sort of spatial representation of ourself, you know, help us to feel connect, you know, that's, that's part of how that process goes. So in some sense, you know, I always like to say that there isn't like one part of the brain that is your religious and spiritual part. Um, it's really your entire brain because, you know, there are so many rich and complex ways in which we engage religious beliefs and it can be cognitive, emotional, experiential, behavioral, and so forth. Um, but so, so in many ways, you know, it, to me, it makes sense that, you know, we were given a brain that allows us to be able to have all of these different kinds of experiences and that there isn't just this, you know, extra part of ourselves that turns on when we walk into a church, for example, and, and begin to pray. But, but that being said, uh, you know, it will be interesting to, to see future studies, to see how much we can really differentiate different kinds of practices and those that are more theistic. Um, and of course, you know, it'd be really interesting also to see, a, you know, is there a difference between a Muslim, a, a Jew, and a Christian all praying to God? Um, you know, are they, are they all doing it in a similar kind of context? Uh, how much do the beliefs that go along with their, with their tradition um, affect the way they think about their relationship with God. Uh, you know, if, if, a, if a Muslim is, has the concept of surrendering to God um, and a, a Christian may have a sense of 
connecting with God or being forgiven by God, then, you know, in and of itself, those could be differences, but not necessarily because of the actual perception of God. It's just how they, how they themselves are, you know, the actual being of God, of course, but it's how they're perceiving that relationship. So, so it's, it's a great question because it's a very complex, you know, we have to go through a very complex set of ways of thinking about that question and, and how we might best answer it. And then, and then keep pushing our, our ability to keep thinking about those questions. There's a uh, philosophical perspective on the mind-brain relationship that um, goes back um, uh, into the 19th century. Uh, It was uh, uh, William James commented on it uh, quite a bit. And that is the notion that um, it's not the case that the the brain generates the mind, but rather that the brain um, focuses the mind. Uh, That is that the mind as part of the soul is a much a much larger thing than we ordinarily experience. And the, the brain is a biological organ that puts the mind to work in the in the natural world, but that the right. mind is something fundamentally different from, from the brain. And I've always been impressed that um, great mystics, uh, I, m- most of my acquaintances with the Christian tr- tradition, mm-hmm. um, speak of a dark night of the soul uh, and the necessity to suppress in, in some sense, suppress your brain activity or suppress your ordinary mental activities to allow oneself to connect to God and to, to connect to transcendent things. Do you see any evidence for that in the brain imaging? Well, you know, in some senses, yes. Uh, you know, again, we have to be careful about what we might conclude. But what has been fascinating to me um, is that in a number of the practices that we have studied where people do feel as if they have kind of released themselves or you know let go or um, kind of or surrendered you know to to God in some way and, and this has been you know there, there have been a number of our brain scans that have looked at this one of the areas in, in our brain that actually particularly shuts down is the frontal lobe and you know our frontal lobes are typically involved in helping us to do purposeful things and to think what we're doing uh, think about what we're doing and do purposeful behaviors so it's intriguing to me that that these that this area of the brain starts to shut down when people have those very intense kinds of mystical experiences, these intense spiritual experiences where they do feel like they're not in charge anymore. They are kind of allowing it to happen and, you know, going along for the ride, if you will. That's absolutely fascinating because that's that's exactly what the um, practical everyday experience of uh, of people who in, in, are, do contemplation or various mystical, uh, mystical prayer uh, try to achieve is to basically shut down their own mind to connect more readily to God's. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so I mean, there there is some evidence for that. And and of course, you know, the other area of our brain, which we have observed quieting down um, is the parietal lobe, which normally helps us to kind of generate, uh, take sensory information and generate our sense of self, our spatial representation of ourself. And during these practices, that parietal lobe starts to quiet down. Uh, we think also in a similar kind of context to kind of blur that boundary between self and other to kind of quiet down the ego self, if you will, in conjunction with the frontal lobe, um, and and thereby you know helping to facilitate that kind of experience. But but I also want to come back to your first point, which I think is also extremely important. We talk about this, you know, I've talked about this a lot in my work. What you know, what is the direction of causality? And again, to me, this is a really fascinating, you know, neurotheological question, philosophical question, and biological question, which is you know what's generating what. 
And I think, you know, it is so fascinating to watch the, you know, individuals who have these intense experiences. It's fascinating to see what goes on in their brain. But again, it doesn't prove that the brain is generating the experience. It, you know, the brain itself, as you were saying, you know, could be, can, you know, I mean, if, if I see a, I mean, just to be really simplistic, if I see an, a car outside, well, you know, my brain didn't generate the car. I, you know, the, the sensory experience that I have of the car is generated in my brain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that's what's going on outside. And so if people are connecting to God, if people are connecting to some, you know, ultimate consciousness or something like that, you know, who's to say whether or not this is just our brain, you know, receiving that experience, as you mentioned, um, or is generating it. And, and I think, you know, this is where, again, I, I think, there's wonderful theological questions, philosophical questions, and now we can bring in a little bit of the science and say, oh, well, you know, isn't this interesting that the frontal lobe quiets down? Does that tell us a little bit more about what's really going on? If somebody is generating language and their language areas have shut down, well, how is that happening exactly? You know, and, and does that push us a little bit further down the path towards investigating these kinds of questions? But, but I think still, you know, ultimately the experiences are, are kind of what's fundamental for us to understand. And, and that's why, you know, even in my own kind of uh, examination of this whole topic, to me, my own contemplative processes are very important because I think that helps me to continue to engage those questions. Do you see any differences between the um, brain activity, uh, again, in people who are contemplating in a way that is theistic and people who are contemplating in, non, in non-theistic ways? Well, you know, the, the one um, interesting little, you know, N of one study that we did, which somewhat answers your question, <laughs> is uh, we, I had a colleague of mine who was a fairly deep meditator, um, had meditated pretty much on a daily basis throughout most of his life did not consider himself to be theistic uh, in in terms of his own religious beliefs. And we said, you know, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you meditate once, you know, while you're thinking about God and then uh, you're meditating on God? You know, what does God mean to you? How do you think about the concept? And then doing that in comparison to just your your other meditation. And what was interesting was, was that, you know, and, and this has to be taken with a big grain of salt, is that when he was thinking about God, his brain didn't do very much. And, and I think that what's important is, is that when you uh, are engaged with something that you profoundly believe in, then that is more likely to cause profound effects in the brain. And when you are meditating on something that you do not believe in, then you, you know it's just not going to give you that kind of, of an impact. Or you know if you don't believe in God, even though you're thinking about God, that that isn't going to have nearly the kind of effect it will uh, as someone who really truly has a belief. And so I think that in general, what we have found is that that people who um, you know who, who do have a more theistic faith, um, you know, certainly activate their brain in very substantial ways, um, very much in terms of you know how they interact with something as opposed to those individuals who have more uh, of a practice where they are not focusing on a particular thing, um, but just kind of emptying the mind, so to speak. And, and there are differences there. But, but again, part of the issue, I think, comes into play, uh, and, and, and this, is, this is challenging to us, is that um, you know, any time that we look at someone who has a, a profound belief uh, a belief in God, for example, then how does that just change their brain at all? And um, and how does that affect the way in which they think about the world, look at the world? Um, how does it prime them, uh, so to speak, to look at the world in certain ways? 
And, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I'm sort of reminded of, of one of our prior studies that I found very interesting where we were showing people different symbols that were either religious or non-religious and, and the religious symbols activated the brain in a much different kind of way than the non-religious symbols were. And then when people had a belief in them, it, it affected them even more. But what was interesting was that it affected it in particular in the occipital lobe, in the primary visual cortex, really before, so to speak, the, the symbol got up into their brain. So it was really affecting the, you know, their beliefs actually affected the way their brain perceived reality, you know, from the get-go. And, uh, and I, I think that has some interest, you know, uh, talking about sort of the interesting theological implications of that, the idea of, you know, if you pray, if you are a religious person, that you actually change sort of, you know, the fundamental nature of who you are. That's what this information kind of talked about. So, so it is possible to do that um, and, and to be able to change you. So, uh, there, so again, you know, fascinating issues and questions that uh, we certainly have a long, long way to go before we can answer all those questions. Kind of getting back to Roger Scruton's quip about uh, the vast body of knowledge or a vast body of answers with, with with such difficulties with the questions. The questions are are so fiendishly tricky. Yes, in the Thomistic um, understanding of the soul, the um, connection one would have with God would be an would be an immaterial connection. It wouldn't be um, uh, a material act of the brain. So one might even imagine that the um, connection with God would not be something that would show up on any kind of brain imaging. Uh, but then again, cause and effect is difficult. So what shows up on brain imaging may be the the material response to the immaterial connection, or it could even be um, the suppression of, uh, of, for example, activity in the in the occipital lobes. Perhaps that's suppression of right. visual um, perception to allow an openness to uh, immaterial uh, ways of understanding. Uh, so it's so difficult to interpret, so difficult to know. Oh, absolutely, but but that, it's a ver- you know that, that it's a really interesting issue too, and and I completely agree. You know, it, it, um, when when you talk about uh, you know how the whatever it may be immaterial about our our being. You know, I, I, well, one of the one of the statements that I've always made is that, in some sense, uh, one of the most fascinating findings I might have is that somebody says I had the most incredible mystical experience while I was in the scanner, and the scanner shows nothing. You know, then, <laughs> then, right, right, then maybe that, by default you actually find you know the the spiritual, so to speak, the the, the immaterial. But right, at least the the Thomistic tradition just sort of roughly considered. Uh, obviously, St. Thomas didn't think a lot about MRI scanners. Right, right. From the Thomistic tradition, one would uh, expect um, there to be no correlate. Exactly, uh, and, exactly. And, um, so, I, I, very interesting. The, yeah, but but also, but and, but let me say this also, which is another, like, another little interesting aside too, which is that, you know, part of what I think is, is an interesting ability to do is to think about how we think about these things. So when we say when somebody conceives of a soul as immaterial, what does that mean? You know, how does a brain understand that, and what does it? You know, how do we engage that uh, in an idea? Uh, part of it is is how does the brain actually? You know, what is the brain doing when it's thinking about an immaterial soul? On the other hand, uh, you know, again, part of what I think is also so important because it just has this sort of it gives it a little bit of this scientific point is, you know, could we, could we go to a church, for example, and ask a hundred people, what do they think about 
the soul and you know how would they describe it or define it or what terms would they use uh, and and see you know like does everybody say it's immaterial does everybody say it doesn't interact with the brain? Do people say it doesn't? Or, you know, like, like how do people actually start to think about these kinds of questions? And, uh, and, you know, that in and of itself provides some fascinating viewpoints in terms of how our brains think about these questions. Um, you know, we, we did a study for one of our books called How God Changes Your Brain, where we asked people to draw a picture of God and we said, you know, what, what just pops into your mind when I say, what does God look like? You know, what, what pops into your mind? And it was fascinating to see what people would draw. And, you know, sometimes people would draw uh, a very anthropomorphized, you know, sort of like the Sistine Chapel kind of concept of, of God, you know, uh, as a sort of, sort of old man with a you know, beard and flowing hair. Um, other people drew very abstract ideas, um, you know, uh, nature. Um, and, and fascinatingly, some people left it blank because they said God is undrawable, you know, and there's, you know, there's no way for me to actually draw God. So, but each one of those answers is fascinating in terms of, well, how does the person actually engage in what they're believing in? Um, and how do they think about that? And so, so there's some really, um, you know, to me, really interesting things that can continue to be explored as we, as we look at these questions. What's rather, uh, rather fascinating is that uh, there's there's a there's a, a, a fantastic book called uh, Otherworld Journeys, and honestly, I'm blocking on the author's name. She's a uh, I think it's Zaleski. So, yes, yes, yes. I'm familiar with that book. Yeah, <laughs> Carol Zaleski. Uh, I I I couldn't put it down. It absolutely fascinated me. And um, what she points out that I think is so intriguing is that throughout human history. Um, there have been these spiritual experiences uh, in 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 all cultures, uh, in all eras, and they seem to have significant commonalities. But the actual content of the experience seems to be determined significantly by your culture, by the world that you're living in. That right. a person living in in our culture would have a different experience of God than a person living in the Middle Ages or a person living in ancient Egypt or a person living in the Far East. And uh, so that we, in some sense, I think what she, what she conveys is that the experiences that people are having are transcendent and they can't be expressed uh, in, their, in their actual form. We can only express them through, through things that we know in our, in our daily lives. And it uh, fascinates me. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely. I mean, that, that raises a whole other area, which is to me very important in the field of neurotheology, which which is, you know, the, these experiences. She was focusing a lot, as you mentioned, on uh, actually on, on like near-death experiences. And right, I mean, you know, if somebody has a near-death experience and they see a being, you know, somebody might, a, a Christian may call it Jesus and a, a Muslim may call it Allah and a, a Hindu may call it Vishnu or something like that. But th so then the question becomes is, do they all see the same thing that they are, as you said, you know, or just they're, they're describing it the best they can based on, on their prevailing belief system, or did they actually fundamentally see something different? Um, and, and in a similar context, you know, people, we, we did this whole online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences. And some people would say, I felt God. Some people said, I felt a force. Some people felt love. Some people felt awe. Um, you know, again, are they the same experience interpret different, interpreted differently? Or are they, you know, uh, uh, are, are they actually different experiences? And, um, and I think that that's by exploring 
the descriptions of these experiences. And maybe if we can somehow, you know, get to something that's going on in the brain and trying to understand that, we can see where the similarities are and the differences. Maybe everyone perceives a being, but they just, they call it different things. But the being is the, is the universal trait. Um, or, or maybe they, you know, one of the, one of the common experiences uh, in these uh, mystical experiences is the feeling of oneness and connectedness with, with God, with the universe. So it, does everybody have that experience? Experience and if so, what do they feel connected to, and uh, you know which are the the more perennialist kind of you know universal characteristics of these experiences, and what are the ones which are unique, um, and and how do we understand those unique characteristics? Um, so yeah, so you know really really fascinating, and and thinking about again you know what's what's really happening in the experience what is happening in the person's consciousness and mind, what's happening in their brain, and and see what we can do about trying to understand the nature of those experiences as best as possible. And of course, you know, again, you know, to me, one of the most fascinating things about all of these experiences is that, uh, and we wrote an article on this, that people describe them uh, as being more fundamentally real than our everyday reality experience. And of course, for the other listeners, you know, we all have that because no matter how real a dream feels uh, when we're asleep, when we wake up, we say, oh, you know, that was just a dream. We immediately relegate it to an inferior perspective of reality. But that's exactly what happens in the context of people having these mystical experiences, which is that the everyday reality then becomes inferior. And I, I don't mean that quite so hierarchically, but, right. but you know, that, that it's not as real um, as these profound experiences. And of course, again, what does that mean? You know, does that mean that they really have achieved a connection, you know, that their brain has connected to a different plane, a different way of looking at the world that it hasn't been able to do before? Um, and, and, or, you know, is it, is it just a manifestation of the brain? I mean, it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Well, well, we will wrap up this segment, but we will, um, uh, return. Uh, and, uh, so I wanted to thank, uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who is a pioneer in, uh, neurotheology, uh, and we will be back with more discussion. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Legner for Mind Matters News. Thank you. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.